This is a Clark University podcast. The lesson that remains really persistent is never underestimate farmers, um, or for that matter, underestimate vulnerable populations. Every time you think you've seen someone who is in such a situation they can't possibly emerge, escape, whatever, start looking for the ways they're managing whatever's in front of them. That's Edward Carr, the director of Clark University's Department of International Development, Community, and Environment, which explores global problems at the intersection of theory, science, and policy. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change, conversations to challenge your mind with people who are changing our world. I was really interested in studying why one village I was working in had been abandoned and another village 500 meters away had not and they were on the same road. Like why would one place go away and the other place continue to exist? That lesson about never underestimating vulnerable populations comes from years ago when he was an archaeologist doing dissertation field work in Ghana. In 1998, my second summer there, uh, there was a drought. The monsoon basically failed. And I was living amongst a group of people whose food supply and basically their economy lived on rain-fed agriculture. So if it doesn't rain, nothing grows. So you would think this is the biggest catastrophe that could happen to these folks. You would have thought this would have been pretty horrendous. Turns out, as I quickly learned, they had designed their entire agricultural system for this exact possibility. So they, where they planted had been set up so if there's a really dry year, they'd have some of their fields in a place where water accumulated, even if it meant losing all their other fields. And I remember thinking, oh, I gotta understand how that happened because that's not the narrative we have. We have this narrative of poorer people, vulnerable people, oh, we have to go help them. And I just watched these people manage it way better than we probably would have. And I thought, geez, that's what I gotta start figuring out. And so my work started to pivot toward really understanding what people were doing now and how they had come to do that. And uh, this is the late 90s, early 2000s, almost nobody is talking about climate change adaptation yet. Fast forward to the present, Carr is a leader in the field and an author in a new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a body of the United Nations responsible for advancing knowledge on human-induced climate change. The job of the IPCC is to create the scientific basis for international negotiations around the climate. Most people don't realize that. They think it's a policy document or an academic exercise. Its actual existence is predicated on giving every country in the world the same scientific baseline so when they go into climate negotiations you don't get into an argument about what reality is. That's why each of these contributions to the big report, there's a working group one, two, and three, I'm part of working group two, each of these is negotiated by the governments before it's accepted. And people are always like, well it's science, why is it negotiated? And the answer is because in the end this document only exists for international politics reasons. It does have a policy side benefit, I would argue, um, in that it is an assessment of our state of knowledge, of, of the climate, its impacts, how we can adapt, how we can mitigate. It's, it assesses all of that really well, but in the end, its role is to inform those negotiations. As a lead author, Carr was responsible for assessing literature and taking on the principal writing responsibilities. He worked on Chapter 18, called Climate Resilient Development Pathways. What we're laying out in the simplest terms, I guess, in this chapter is if we want to deal with climate change and we want to achieve things like the Sustainable Development Goals, if we want to actually make the world a better place to live in for everybody, 
we don't have that many pathways to get there. The number of pathways we have is getting smaller all the time. The longer we wait, the fewer options you have. And the fact we've waited as long as we have means that we are more or less out of ways to imagine getting to that kind of a future without substantial transformations in how we live in the world. And I can't think of like a bigger tragedy than to put ourselves back where we were in terms of quality of life two, three centuries ago because we refused to really just address something that was right in front of us that we were clearly doing and that we had the power to address. It's a daunting and depressing message. Bakar says there are ways to move forward. There are plenty of choices we can make. Um, and we're starting to make them. I think that's another thing people maybe are not picking up enough. We've seen, um, for example, electric vehicles go from effectively nothing to pretty common in under a decade. And it seems to be accelerating. And now the policy environment's racing to catch up with the market, which is kind of interesting, but actually not that unusual. The question really though becomes, is it reactive? Is it markets catching up with reality and then the policy world catching up with the markets? Or is it the policy world looking at reality and trying to create the frameworks that would drive markets more quickly in that direction? Either way, we're gonna to get to some of these pathways. The real question is, how good an outcome could we have? If you wait 15 years, we're limiting how good things can be in 2050 or 2100. Um, if we start moving today, we got a lot of opportunities to do better stuff. But that said, it is daunting. The conversation about climate change often leads to a call to action for individuals. Recycle, reduce food waste, use public transportation. Some feel the discussion doesn't put enough pressure on large corporations. So where should we put our focus? People always ask me, what's the most important thing you can do? And I say, vote. That's the thing that's gonna create the regulatory environment. That's how you're gonna get real change in a lot of ways. Sure, you can do individual things, but if you're not engaging at that level, we have a big problem. And it's that regulatory environment that corporations live in. The government lives in, because the government's a massive emitter as well, right? All those kinds of things that an individual otherwise can't do anything about. You can't change how uh, Walmart chooses to transport things, but a regulatory environment can create a situation that causes Walmart to do something different. So I think that, yeah, we have to spend a lot more time thinking about the big structural stuff. Even during a time of tense political discourse in America, Carr doesn't think climate change has been a big voting tool yet. The next generation of voters could bring that shift. I can very clearly see a generation of people coming up who are either now, just now becoming voters because of their age, or will be, so like my children, for whom this is a gigantic issue front and center for them all the time. But for older voters, and I would even someone my age and up, it's one of many things they worry about and it doesn't necessarily drive voting behavior yet. Describing himself as a hopelessly realistic optimist, Carr says there is still an opportunity to address the crisis in front of us. I'm an optimist both by nature, but also because of what I've seen. You hang out with enough farmers, you hang out with enough herders, you hang out with enough people that we think of as vulnerable, and you watch their incredible capacity, and it renews my faith in humanity's ability to do stuff. We react too slow, we don't move fast enough, but when we decide to do something as a species, we, we usually can get it done.
So I'm optimistic in that sense. And that keeps me really invested because we have to. There's a whole generation of kids coming through and there are undergrads now. They know that this is a really huge problem and they don't need to be convinced and they don't need to have the costs explained and they don't have time for our excuses. The realist in me thinks that unfortunately even my generation probably isn't going to be the one that bends the politics on this far enough, but they're coming and, and hopefully Hopefully they keep voting. <laughs> to learn more about Clark's Department of International Development, Community and Environment, visit clarku.edu slash IDCE. To learn more about the IPCC report, visit IPCC.ch. You can find other episodes of Challenge Change wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark!